You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's great to be here with you all this morning. Thank you for joining us, and thanks for those who are on live stream. It's great to connect through the Holy Spirit and technology. So, the other day, I was taking my kids to school. I have a son who's almost 10 and a five-year-old daughter, and they're in that stage where there's a lot of, like, sibling bickering. And so my older son, my son Kai, you know, he really likes to get our five-year-old Emily's, he likes to get a rise out of her, which is not hard. So if you can remember when you were a kid and perhaps you had a sibling, and remember that thing where you just put your toe on the other seat? And they're like, ah, get off, get off, he's out of my seat. So essentially that's what Emily was doing, and he was putting his foot over there, and she was very upset, and then he would reach over and poke her, and that would make her upset, and then she threw her water bottle at him, and then he got mad, and it was just a little bit of like, you know, family civil war in the back seat, and it was driving me as a driver, trying to be peaceful, a little crazy. So of course, I said, Kai, because he's the oldest, right, quit being your irritating self and be your kind self to Emily. And Kai's in a bit of a squirrely stage, and he said, Mom, I'm 20% irritating, 40% kind, 30% loving, and 10% angry. And then I'm living in my irritating part right now. (laughs) So, you know, we kind of laughed, and he regrouped, and we, we, we made it to school. And I said to Kai, Kai, that's so profound. You are right. He didn't mean it to be profound. He was being a little smart-alecky. I said, Kai, you're so profound. We humans are like that. We're 100% human, and we're made up of irritation and kindness and love and anger and sadness and disappointment, and we're made up of all the things. And that's what it means to be human. We have all of these wants inside of us, all these desires, including at times to be irritating to our siblings, right? So on Monday, Dr. Brown talked about you are what you love, and I'm continuing that series today. The spiritual conversation in the Holy Spirit about what is it that you're made up of? What is it that you love? What is the desire that your life is oriented around. And if you could divide yourself up into percentages and you were being honest, Holy Spirit honest, and only the way you can with the help of the Holy Spirit, how would you talk about yourself? What are the ways that you are made up of? So as we go through this journey of a message today, my hope is is that you will be open to how the Holy Spirit is asking you that question in a lot of different ways. What do you love? What do you desire? What are you made up of? What are your habits and behaviors that are shaping you that identify your desires? So I've been, I've been saying to myself and to others, I grew up in the late 1900s. <laughs> True story. I grew up in the late 1900s. I've been reminding myself that I grew up in a different century than you all grew up in. Can you believe that? I grew up in the late 1900s, and as a child of the late 1900s, of the 80s and 90s, of course this summer, what movie did I go see? Top Gun Maverick, of course! I had to relive my teenage years, people. 
I have a friend who says that all of American pop culture peaked in the 80s and 90s, and it's just been remakes and sequels since then. So Phil Majors, you can fight me on that one. I don't know, she's not all wrong, people. So I went to see the new Top Gun movie, and I did find it very enjoyable. In fact, I went with two groups of people two times, and I'm, I hardly, like, hardly have ever done that in my life. And you know, in my humble, non-film uh, study trained eye, I really thought that the, you know, the remake or the sequel or whatever it is was actually a little bit better. And it had some really socio-cultural issues, interestingly, in it. Like, did you pick up on the nameless, faceless enemy? Did y'all see that? That was so interesting. We could have like a whole conversation about why the enemy was nameless and faceless. Anyway, in the movie, right, and I'm, take, I'm guessing that some of you went to see this movie, right? Not just the children of the late, the children of the, of the late 1900s. In the, in the movie, Maverick, the test pilot, is attempting to pass through high hypersonic speed and surpass Mach 10. Okay, this happens in like the first 10 minutes. This is not a spoiler, all right? So he's, uh, he defies orders, of course, because that's what Maverick in this movie does. He defies orders, of course, and he pushes his scramjet beyond all limits and all human limitations to get past, right, Mach 10. And those of you who saw, he does uh, get past Mach 10. It is this really intense moment early in the movie, people, early in the movie, not a spoiler. And then there's this massive explosion, destroys the prototype. And one of my favorite parts of that movie is when he like, so he lands and parachutes somewhere, we don't know exactly where, and as he like stumbles into a diner, do you remember this scene? And he like looks like he's been in an explosion, and he stumbles in and the whole diner is filled with bewildered people and they're looking at him and he's like, where am I? And there's a little boy who's like, Earth. <laughs> it's super cute. <laughs> Anyway, the premise of Top Gun Maverick is that it trains the best of the best at this naval fighter school, Top Gun. And these elite pilots, the best graduates ever, have been rounded up to fight the nameless, faceless enemy. And they are trained to endure all sorts of G-force, interpersonal pressures, their own internal personal demons to continue their training. The movie is all about what it means to be the best and the habits and practices and training for good and for bad, not all of the practices and habits are make, that make them the best fighter pilots would necessarily make them the best people, but nevertheless, it is all about their training, their habits and practices, and their motivations. Like what motivates them? Where's their desire to fly these, these, uh, fighter, these fighter jets at these top speeds and risk their lives? Well, uh, we are not necessarily the uh, elite of Top Gun. We're the, uh, you know, we're the Asbury elite. <laughs> but we're in training. You're in training, I'm in training. And our habits, which comes from our loves and our wants and our desires, are training us to be who we're becoming. If you are in training to become the person God has created you to be, if you are in training for the good life of God, then your habits and practices matter. Well, they matter no matter what. Your habits and practices are training you for something. And in an interesting way, our habits and practices develop our desires and our loves, but it also works the other way around. Our desires, the things we desire, the things that we love, also motivate our habits and practices. No one wakes up 
20 years from now, as a Christ follower or a person who is after God's own heart, any more than someone wakes up as an elite fighter pilot without training. Whatever it is that God is unfolding in your heart to be, and if, as we hope and pray that it will be, to seek out the good life in God, the good life and the goodness of God, to be a holy person set apart for God's work in the world, to be who you're created to be in God, if that, if that is your trajectory, if that is what you want to become, then you must train your heart and your habits and desires to seek after the good life in God. You have a role to play in the training of what you desire. You heard the scripture story that Savasti read for us. If you can imagine this rich young ruler, you know, the elite of his day, and he's trying to get it right. He's in training for something, we're not sure what, but he's trying to get it right. And he approaches Jesus and he says, I've kept all the commandments. Dr. Brown talked about on Monday, everything that I could keep with my head, everything above the neck that I could keep, I've kept. I've kept all the commandments, I've done it. What else must I do to inherit eternal life? So I guess we know that was what his desire was, eternal life. Teacher, from my youth, I've kept them all. And it says that Jesus turns to him. And the first thing it says is that he loved him. When we can approach Jesus and we show up and we say, here's the desires of my heart. Tell me, tell me, Lord, what do I need to do? What's the next step? Where am I headed? Do you know that Jesus' first response for you and to me is to turn to us in love, to look at us with love. And Jesus saw saw not only all of his external work and effort to follow the commandments he was following, but Jesus, as the Holy Spirit does, could examine the motives of his heart. And so Jesus knew what his heart desires were. And so he gives him a very specific teaching, one that is guiding and shaping to all of us, and one that was specific to this rich young ruler. He says, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come follow me. That is a hard teaching for all of us to wrestle with. But for this man particularly, it spoke right to his place of desire and want. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked away with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he was not about to let it go. Jesus knew that man's heart. Jesus knew his true loves. Jesus knew that he had been trying to keep it all together externally, but the actual motivations of his heart were not yet in line with the kingdom of God. He had it right on the outside, but his internal motivations, his love and desire were not in line with the Jesus way. You know, frankly, I see myself in this man. I wonder if you do as well, or if there's parts of you that do. Percentages. Towards the end of my college experience and into my 20s, I was really wrestling with this external and internal. The way that I'm wired naturally and the way that I grew up in my own nature 
personality and some of it good and some of it broken and sin. The way that I was wired or am wired was to seek out perfectionism and to seek out performance and pleasing. So maybe similar to this young man. You know, I I wanted to work really, really hard to perform right, to get it right, to look like I had it going on in the right way. I wanted to perform right. Perfectionism, I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted it to be right in every way. I wanted to own that space. (laughs) And then pleasing, I wanted other people to think that I was doing it in the right way that they thought I should do it in. And I was spending a lot of my desire and want and a lot of my energy, even subconsciously, orienting my life, my practices, my habits around those deep desires to get it right, to perform, to be perfect, to please. And that showed up in my life in all kinds of ways. But it mostly did through shame, through waves of shame when I didn't please or didn't get it right, or wasn't perfect, and didn't perform. It was really at the end of my college experience, like my senior year of college, that the Holy Spirit began to unpack that for me, really dramatically. Began to show me and reveal to me that while I was trying to get it all right in my head, I was trying to do all the right things, that my heart had not yet received the grace of God that my heart had not yet actually turned its desire to desire God and what God had for me. I was still trying to control a lot of my reality. And truly, that journey has stayed with me my whole life. I've received so much victory over it. And during my 20s was really through a whole decade God continued, continued to call me out of that, continued to ask me and invite me into this way of grace-filled holiness, into this way where my whole heart belonged to God and I wasn't trying to control and get it right. But it was a huge journey. And I would say that even now, that that can rear its head and that that's the place where the Holy Spirit consistently is inviting me into more and consistently is looking at me as, at, with love like Jesus looked at this young man and saying, Sarah, there's a better thing for you to want. There's a better thing. You know, throughout the Gospels, Jesus asked this question. He asked it in different ways. What do you want? Do you want to be made well? He asked that several times people who were blind, to the man at Bethesda, do you want to be healed? At the end, to Peter, one of the Gospels, three times he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus not only is inviting people into relationship, but he keeps asking this question, what is it that you want? What is it that you really want? What is it that your heart desires? Because the Lord knows, and still for us, that that question of what we want is so integral to what the Holy Spirit wants to do for us and in us. And if we really desire to be a person of God, to be healed and whole, to have victory over sin, it really comes down to that deep question of your soul and my soul, what is it that we want? 
So some of you uh, have read, some of you have read the Harry Potter books, right? And right now, I, I told you I've got an almost 10-year-old, and I'm reading The Order of the Phoenix to him. Does anybody remember reading the Harry Potter books? Yeah, reading The Order of the Phoenix to him. And I like, th- I like the Harry Potter books and that they have concepts of good and evil and loyalty and betrayal, but what real friendship is and sacrifice and... There's, there's a lot of dynamics to unpack in there. And, you know, we just started that book, The Order of the Phoenix, and if you remember, it's the part, you know, where, like, the Dementors come near Privet Drive and they, like, almost suck out Dudley's soul. Do you remember this part? It's a little scary. And it reminded me, too, of the very first movie and the first book, The Philosopher's Stone. And do you remember when uh, that really connects in with this question of what do you want? So if you remember, those of you who've seen the movie way, way back, that's probably like from the 90s as well. <laughs> you've seen the movie, or maybe it's early 2000s, who knows. But Harry, in that first movie or book, Harry's out in Hogwarts Castle, and he's got his invisibility cloak on. Do you remember that makes him invisible? And he's like uh, running from Snape and Finch. Is that his name? Filch? Filch. Finch? Okay, y'all are nodding at me, I don't know. Okay, so he's running away from Snape at least, and then remember he like slips into this room to hide. Later on we find, it's like, find out it's called the room of requirement. And he goes into this room, and he's got the invisibility cloak on, and he sees a mirror in the back of the room. Do you remember this? He sees this mirror, and it's an ornate, large gold mirror with claw feet. And Harry looks in the mirror, and he's so surprised that what he sees to his shock is not his reflection, but he sees a crowd of people standing behind, standing, well, it's with him, but standing behind him. He, he looks around, and, and the room is empty, so he looks back, and sure enough, there he is, but it's more than him. It's this whole extended family. And the woman that's standing right beside him has eyes just like he does. And the man standing next to her has glasses and untidy black hair, just like Harry. And Harry realizes that these are his parents. And the people around him are his extended family, and they smile at him. And it says that Harry has this powerful kind of ache inside of him, half joy and half terrible sadness. So later he finds out that what he was looking in is the mirror of Erised. And Erised, if you look into a mirror, is desire spelled backwards. And when you look into the mirror of Erised, it shows you your deepest desire. And for Harry at that time in the story, it was showing his deepest desire to be with his family. When he brings his friend Ron back and they look in the mirror together and Ron looks and, and Ron sees himself as like the Quidditch winner with like a, cha- you know, the champion, championship trophy and everyone cheering for him. It's his deepest desire. And around the mirror is engraved, I show not your face, but your heart's desire backwards. Dumbledore tells Harry that this mirror is dangerous. It's been known to drive one mad, that people have lost their lives staring into the mirror, seeing what it is that they most desire, but it's always out of reach. They get stuck in this place of never actually living or acting upon it. Perhaps it was like some kind of magical Instagram feed that sucks out your soul into some kind of (laughs) non-reality. You're just always looking at it and scrolling, right, and wanting to be something other than what you have. I wonder today, if you looked in the mirror of Erised, what would look back at you? What would look back at you? What would be the deepest desire that the Holy Spirit could reveal to you? Do you know that the Holy Spirit audits our hearts? Audit means to make 
an official inspection of one's account. The Holy Spirit examines our hearts, audits our hearts, and looks at what we love at the deepest level. The Holy Spirit takes stock at our deep motivations. And I wonder what the Holy Spirit would find in your soul. Jamie Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, that a lot of this series was inspired from, talks about that there are subconscious things that we desire in worship that we don't even realize that we're orienting our life around. He uses consumerism as one example but that our life is compelled and oriented. There's a gravitational force of something like consumerism that shapes us even when we do not know it. And it's the habits and practices of our lives that help us identify what we really are orienting our life around. It's like Earth orients, the whole solar system orients around the sun. What are the things that are in the center, the gravitational force of your life that you are orienting around? Is it perfection? Is it pleasing? Is it image? Is it status? Is it having to be right? Is it having to know it all? Is it being in control? Is it being the most helpful person in the room? If it's, is it getting, being the most popular, the most relevant? What is it? What is the orienting piece, the thing that's gravitational to you. I really uh, try not to take my children shopping, grocery shopping. <laughs> like, click list is like the best modern ph phenomenon. And the people that were born in the late 90s would, I mean, the late 1900s would know what I mean. But anyway, Kroger is the click list. is such a great phenomenon. But sometimes I have to take my two youngest children with me to the, to the grocery store. And, and I don't know if you did this to your mom. But uh, sometimes, like, when we're going through the grocery store, they just try to, like, slip things in the cart. Never did that. <laughs> so, like, when I get to, like, the end and I'm unloading the cart, they're like, where is this box of Lucky Charms came from? Like, where is this bag, this pack of Hubba Bubba? Like, why do we have two things of Cherry Coke? Like, what's going on? So it'll be, like, little things that, like, get slipped in, and especially, like, in the, the, the right at the very end, right, when everything, who created it? It's, like, kids level, right? Like, all the candy and little random toys. And my little daughter, Emily, is just like, she is like, oh, we got to have it all. It's all going in the cart. And so I'm trying to like unload the cart and keep Emily under control and tell Kai, quit it. You know, it's a lot. I'm telling you, it's a lot. That's why we have click list. Anyway, so I put them all onto the belt. But every once in a while, something will escape. And I'll get home and I'll be unloading the groceries and there's like some random spice that Emily put in there. You know, like, what is this? Like, or there's some like can of soup. Like, I would never buy celery soup. I know some of your moms would. I would never buy it. There it is, celery soup. How did this get into our home? You know, I think that as we go through life, our hearts and lives are like big Kroger shopping carts, people. <laughs> we just keep putting stuff in. We just keep putting stuff in. And we're not even realizing that the culture around us and our friends and our social media and our movies and our books and our conversations, they're just throwing stuff in that cart. They're just throwing it in the cart. We're not taking stock. We just keep on going through life. And we haven't really taken stock at all the things that we've allowed to fill up the cart. We haven't taken stock of all the things that are in our heart that we're orienting our lives around. In Psalm 139, 23, it says it like this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Will you dare to ask the Holy Spirit to take stock of your heart? 
take stock of the things that you have loaded into your heart, perhaps without your knowledge. In Harry Potter's story, Dumbledore explains that for the mirror of Erised, the most happiest and most satisfied person in the world would look into that mirror and see a reflection of themselves exactly as they are. For they would have no one and nothing more to yearn or desire for than that mirror could ever show them. You know, and that makes sense to me in our culture. One of our highest cultural values is to celebrate our own unique authenticity through self-expression and self-actualization, and that our greatest love is to be true to ourselves, to be able to look into the mirror of desire and to look back just at ourselves as is. So it's no surprise that that shows up in Harry Potter because it reflects our cultural ideals of truth. But the story of God veers from this plot line, people. Do you know that God is the ultimate reality? And the more that culture distorts the goodness of God and the ultimate reality of God, the more that it becomes less real. Think about that for a while. Our human story in God, the most real story, the most ultimate expression of our reality is that yes, we are accepted as is by Jesus. Jesus looks upon us with love and loves us in the middle of our mess, in the middle of me trying to figure out how to control and being perfect and pleasing and perfectionism. God did not need that to be under control before the Holy Spirit met me. But that is not the answer of desire. My authenticity, your authenticity, as is. When we orient ourselves around ourselves, our plot line does not cultivate, culminate in contentment and wholeness and peace. It culminates in brokenness and emptiness. As humans, we were made for God. We were not made to be left as is. We were made to be filled up with the Holy Spirit for our lives not to be self-worship, but to be about God. This is what we are made for. Evelyn Underhill, a British author and retreat leader that overlapped a bit with C.S. Lewis, she says that we are made for God. We belong to God. She says we will never be satisfied simply in ourselves because we are for God. She says of each of us, God demands full sanctification. That means to become fully his, to fully belong to him for our full spiritual growth as the only way in which we become capable of the full and perfect surface and take our place in the economy of the spiritual universe. Do you know God is calling to you, compelling you to know that your deepest desire is not for yourself, but for God, and that God's never been content with our contentment in our sinful and broken state. God invites us into more, into full spiritual growth, to be who we are created to be in God. And it begins with this inventory of the soul. 